Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. We have a guest today, Sherry. One that I'm very excited and slightly nervous about, except they reassured me I shouldn't be nervous. A little intimidated? A little intimidating. Yeah. Like, like, maybe awestruck a little bit. Like, you know, like, fan. Yeah. Kind of. If not for the show notes, so our listeners probably already know who this is, we could try to keep it a secret for a little while. Like but the Smartless podcast. Yeah. Yeah, they're Yeah, we, we don't quite run that way, I suppose. But we're going we're gonna to bring Amber on in just a second, and I'm so excited. But we want to stick with our new tradition we've been doing for a few months and answer a listener question really quick. Not to keep Amber waiting. Absolutely. And if you would like to ask a question, remembering that it's just about Sherry and I's personal experience and what we've experienced in getting to know other people and the fact that we are not therapists or psychologists, so you will not get a clinical answer from us. But if you'd like to ask us a question, send that to matt at soberandunashamed.com. Our question for today, so appropriate given who our guest is. (laughs) Did you or do you still see a couples counselor or individual counselor and why or why not? Sherry, do you want to address that first? Certainly. Um, I think I know what you're going to say, but I can't wait. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Gosh, our our youngest is 13. So it must have been before he was born and in his young um, years. I had mentioned oftentimes that we needed counseling. I wanted to see someone and you were always, always very adamant about no. Um, You had a story that just didn't make sense, but of why you didn't want to go and you always, you know, pushed it. Finally, you said, okay, fine. If you want to see a counselor, go ahead. So I, you know, went to our general practitioner, explained the situation because we needed to get, I wanted to work within our insurance. So I needed to get, um, her the what do you call that uh, a referral a referral yeah so I needed to get a referral and I wrote the date wrong in my calendar and I missed the appointment and by a day oh, okay. the and then I said and that was karma oh, it's God's sign you missed the appointment such a prick you're like oh so yeah. understanding yeah because you're probably slugging a beer out in the backyard mowing and because I was so devastated I didn't miss that appointment and then I felt, you know, because I was just so defeated. Yeah. So, of course, well, I... Well, gaslighting has a defeating effect yeah, on people. Yeah, so, of course, I own that. And we never... I didn't try that for quite a while. And I would throw out the word counselor. And you're like, no, no, no. And I was like, even how about our pastor? And you're like, absolutely not. That would be even worse, him knowing our stuff. And That's all. Yeah. That's what it was all about for me. Yeah. I wanted to protect the secret. I definitely conflated therapy with, um, with uh, drugs, with pharmaceuticals, like to me, it was all the same thing. And it's so funny now because I have so much respect for, and I think it's so important. I think everybody should be in therapy, whether they've experienced alcoholism or some other trauma or whatever. I just think it's great to talk about our stuff, but I did spend a couple of three decades of my life vilifying therapy and what do those people know? And I think that's a a fairly traditional response from people who are in denial about the way they're living their lives and how it doesn't 
jive with the way they think or want to be yeah. living their lives. And then you actually started our podcast with a therapist, a therapist. of all people. <laughs> um, can't and believe I trusted a, that he's guy. He's a friend. And can't believe I befriended <laughs> a therapist. <laughs> this is when you were into sobriety. And then after a couple of years of mass sobriety, when we realized that alcohol removal and him working on himself wasn't going to fix our problems. And I had a sort of a meltdown about whether we use paper or plastic bags to collect the lawn debris in the spring. And we decided, uh, I think you need some help. Yeah. And so that we decided that so, that was the time. So we've never done couples counseling, but only because we just haven't like gotten around to it yet. We're not against it. We think it's wonderful. Uh, individual therapy, big check mark. Yes. Um, and just think it's great. And I mean, there's definitely bad therapists out there. We're not going to get into that, but, but the majority are great. Find a good one, find one that fits and uh, don't do as we say, do it or don't do as we do, do as we say, because it's, it's great. Um, and so we let's pose that as our first question to our guest. We are welcoming, as I live and breathe, Amber Hollingsworth is with us today. Many of you know Amber from the Put the Shovel Down YouTube channel, her wonderful videos. She is an addiction recovery counselor. She also uh, manages the Family Recovery Academy dot online website full of great resources. We'll uh, make sure at the end of the podcast and in the show notes, we give you ways to see Amber's stuff and be in contact with her. Amber Hollingsworth, welcome to the Intoxicated Podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And I'm happy that you said I could weigh in on that question because I was dying over here. Yeah. Thinking, well, I want to say come something. Come on, come on. <laughs> what do you think? Jump into that. Okay. Please. I actually have a video that I've just recorded, just got through editing about this topic. Like, should we go to couples counseling? So, I'm, so your listeners are going to get the, like, y'all get the early release. Okay. Neat preview. <laughs> yeah. Um, if someone is still in active addiction, I, I typically don't recommend couples counseling. And here's why. Um, because one of two things will happen. You either go in there and no one will say anything because they don't want to fight in front of the therapist. And then you leave feeling like, well, that's not helpful. I don't want to spend a lot of money on that. You know, why do I do that? Or you go in there and then you do say what you're thinking, feeling, and then it's just a big old giant fight. And then you leave feeling worse than you felt when you came in. And the, which the thing that makes it different than typical couples counseling, because I'm not opposed to couples counseling in general, just in this issue, um, is because the person with the substance abuse problem is going to feel ganged up on, going to feel shameful and embarrassed, and they're either going to stop going, <laughs> they're going to resist going to begin with, I'll be surprised, kind of like you guys talked about, if they do agree to go, <laughs> and, and then if they do go, they're going to feel so defensive when someone else is in the room. So in our practice, like a lot of times people show up, they're like, oh, Amber's like the family counselor. And they're like, oh, I'm going to make a point with Amber and I want to bring my husband along. And she's going to tell him like, hey, stop drinking. I'm like, no, I will not do that in front of you because it just, it doesn't work. Um, so it, it's a thing that a lot of people want to do, but it's not a thing I really advise because you could work on the other marriage stuff, but it's not going to get better if the addiction's still there. And if you work on the addiction, that's probably just going to blow up in my experience. Well, <laughs> our experience lines up with that perfectly. 
Yeah, I guess we should have clarified. Uh, we're fans of it, but only after you've entered sobriety and, and you're have, and you're working on each other individually and then kind of come. That's kind of what we because we've seen we've seen what you've described where the loved one brings the drinker in and says, you know, finally, this counselor is going to tell you to stop drinking. And that sometimes doesn't happen at all, depending on the counselor's experience. Sometimes if they don't have a lot of addiction experience, we've seen cases where they they validate the drinking and say, no, you can drink. That's fine. And and but we've also seen where the drinker gets in there and says, fine, I'm going to tell them, pardon my language, but I'm going to tell them what a bitch you are. And they're going to, you know, validate all the, the tendencies you have. And, and so you're right. It just pits people against each other. Couldn't agree more. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, I couldn't imagine answer. dragging you to a marriage counselor because you would be, I'd go right now. Well, you'd go, but when you were drinking, oh yeah, because then I can't imagine the backlash that would happen in the house. Yeah. When we got home. Oh, that's car ride home. We've always heard, we heard like car rides home were terrible. We've heard about people that drive separately to the couple's counselor because mm -hmm. the, the spouse that's going to get berated doesn't want to be in the car with the person afterwards yeah. when the true feelings come out. Now so in our office, we do like to work with the whole family. We just do it different. Like we give the person with the addiction their own counselor, which is usually me. And we give the family member their own counselor, which is usually like Campbell or Kim or Scott, one of my family specialists. And then we work as a team. <laughs> I know this is going to sound terrible because I also don't think just individual counseling for someone with an addiction works either. <laughs> because they're going to go in and tell that counselor a version of the story to get that counselor to validate that their wife is a B basically and that she's overreacting about their drinking because they're going to tell it in such a way that's pretty convincing and so it, it, that can make it worse because then the the counselor is unknowingly sort of siding it, you know, they're just making it, they're validating the wrong thing, I guess I'd say. So we call it lawyering in our office. Everybody gets a lawyer, an advocate. And so it's my job to see my person's point of view. And it's their job to see their person's point of view. And we do sometimes get all in the same room together, but you don't come without your lawyer. It's like court. <laughs> so you don't feel ganged up on either side. And then you have your person to help you talk. So that's the way we do it. That's great. It sounds like a great format. Sounds like something you've probably worked out over time, figured out what worked best. Definitely. Speaking of overtime, let's back up, Amber. I want to learn more about you. I, I when we before we started recording, we said, you know, we watch your videos, but we don't know the backstory. So we want to know the backstory. How did you get into this? How did addiction become something you were interested in as a field? And um, tell us how it became a passion for you. Also, when you're telling the story, if you would love to add how you came up with the name for your YouTube channel. Okay. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. I can do that. I can do that. Well, I, I'm going to start out by telling you <clears throat> that my story about how I became a counselor is not nearly as fabulous as an origin story as most people in this field. And so I'm a little jealous, like you guys have a better okay. origin story than me. So I'm just going to fair warning. Um, I come from a very addictive family. All my grandparents had addictions. My parents had addictions. My mom died of a methamphetamine addiction eventually. I'll tell you about that later if you want to know. Um, my sister, my um, half-sister had addictions. It was just everywhere. Like I didn't know anything else. But that's not why I got in the field <laughs> because I didn't even know it until I was in the field. I didn't even know that there was so many addictions and it was so dysfunctional until after I was an addiction counselor. 
Now, sometimes I, I think hard about, you know, sort of telling the story a little different because it's just a better origin story. You know, it's like, and then I was convicted, you know, I wanted to help people and then I got in the field, but that's not how it happened. I went to school initially to be a teacher and then I decided that was too hard. So then I decided I go back to school and I was to be a guidance counselor or something. And then, so I was in counselor school, but I was going to be a, like a school guidance counselor. But at the last minute, I mean, you have to spend like a year of internship. And I couldn't afford to take off an entire year from working as a teacher to do that internship because it was just me. I was a mom. Well, I was married, but it was just me and my husband and I just couldn't do that. And so I switched at the last minute my major to community counseling so that I could intern in the summers, which worked with my teaching thing. And I got placed in an addiction um, placement, like in, an, um, in a chemical dependency IOP program. And then I got hired there. And then they asked me because I had been a teacher, a high school teacher, they wanted me to develop a substance abuse program for teenagers. And so they they just literally, I was like a baby counselor. I didn't know a thing in the world. And they just said, here you go, develop this program. And we're going to give you about 14 addicted teenagers straight out of crisis stabilization and you fix them. <laughs> That's how I got in the field. Um, looking back, I can see that probably the reason it stuck is because I do understand addiction more on like even like a subconscious level. Like I grew up in it. I connect to people that have the issue very easily. Um, you know, how they say like, sometimes they'll say like, go deep Freud. You're attracted to the people like that reminds you of your family or your parents. I guess that's it. Cause I feel super comfortable um, in the room with it. So that's how I got here. Um, the how I got to the YouTube name. I'm terrible at naming things. The name of my practice is Hope for Families Recovery Center. And my clients like it, but I hate it <laughs> because it's so cheesy. And I'm not cheesy. I'm just not that kind of counselor. It just sounds cheesy. And I'm like, I want something cool, like a cool name. But we got Hope for Families. And the reason is, is because I, when I went out into private practice, my sister is like really smart with everything computers and so she just made me like a base like website on like a Wix software program and she just named it that as a placeholder and I just left it and then when I went to create the YouTube channel I named it like addiction recovery resources and then my sister said people might not want to subscribe to that because then it's going to say their subscription to this channel you should you should call it something that people would recognize that maybe have something to do with that world, but but wouldn't recognize otherwise. And that's how we got to put the shovel down, which is it's an old recovery saying is you hit your bottom when you put your shovel down. You decide how far you go. You decide when you want out and you can stop anytime. So that's how the, the name came about. It's a great name. Very relatable. Uh, I think all of our listeners um, know exactly what it means when they hear it. So that that's really great. Now, we got to back up to one piece, though, of the family story. You said that I'm very sorry to hear this. Your mother passed away from addiction, but mm -hmm. you didn't but you didn't know it at the time. Can you shed some light on that for us? Well, that was I was probably in my, in my mid 20s when that happened. And I was already a counselor when oh, she okay. when okay. she died. But she had had a methamphetamine addiction for a long time. And it actually, I think, partially is why my older half-sister ended up with the same kind of addiction, because I think they actually used together some. And she was married a bunch of times. She, The last guy she was married to, I think, made the meth. And so it was a mess. But 
one of the reasons why I don't talk about it that much isn't because I it bothers me to talk about, but because my mom was still a really good mom. Like I thought she was awesome. And she was, she was creative. She was pretty. Um, my grandparents were great grandparents. And so even though I will sit here and tell you, yes, they were addicted, very addicted. Like I do not have a single memory of my grandmother without a glass of vodka in her hand. Doesn't matter the time of day, but she was a wonderful grandmother. And so I, I don't like to talk about my family stuff because I don't want to, first of all, it's their business. And secondly, I don't want to, when I say those things, it portrays them and negatively when they weren't, if that makes any sense. Yeah, uh, absolutely. With all of that swirling around, with with growing up with addiction everywhere, how did you avoid it? We so often see, <clears throat> pardon me, where people understand the downsides of addiction, but they they fall into it anyway. Have have you? I mean, you must have thought about that, right? How how did you stay out of the out of the typhoon? There are probably a couple of reasons for that. One, one, probably the biggest reason for that is, and you guys are probably familiar with this because it's like a really old recovery concept, but like family role, like addicted family roles, you know, like the enabler, the scapegoat, you know, that, that whole model. I was probably the family hero in my family. So I was always just focused on um, working. I worked from like 13 years old usually two jobs up until now still work all the time. Um, and so it just wasn't my role in the family. My role in the family was to make the right decisions, to help pay the bills, to, to take care of people and that kind of thing. So that was part of it. Part of it was because even though I didn't realize it was like addiction was going on in my family, didn't realize that my family made not great choices. And I can remember as a teenager, this is really lame. I'm going to get so many lame points for this. Literally thinking to myself, because, you know, teenagers are going to rebel against whatever their parents are. So I remember thinking, I'm not going to make bad choices like y'all. I'm going to make good choices. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I didn't necessarily relate that to like substance use at the time. I just made it's more of a general thought. And then the last little piece I think that came into place for me was there was a point in time when my dad like went into business with this guy. They like uh, were in business, the pawn shop business and um, his business partner and I was right about like a um a teen maybe even a preteen where you first start to sort of understand these things and I remember my dad telling me that the guy that was his partner was an alcoholic and um he was really advanced in his alcoholism like like fall down like messy like really bad um and in fact, his alcoholism, I think, was so bad that his, he had so much liver damage that if he just drank anything at all, he would be that intoxicated, you know, one beer or whatever. And I can remember thinking then, I don't, that's not for me. It was just literally like a choice I made that early, not for me. And I just didn't. So I think it was the those three things combined as to why I chose the, the other route out <laughs> The decision that you made not to make bad choices, that cracks me up and it makes me think of one of our kids when he was younger, he said his job was going to be when he grew up to be a millionaire. And, it's, and we would try to explain that's not actually a job, that's a result. And that you made me think of that with that kind of simplistic, I'm just not going to make bad choices. That's going to, I don't <laughs> care what the decision is, I'm going to make the right one. I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to show y'all, you know, just That's with right. my rebellion. Well, Ridiculous. As it turns out, uh, it sure seems like you have yeah. done just that. Yeah. I think the, the recovery community is uh, 
in a very grateful that you made those choices because I think that you help a lot of people. How, how do you pick how? Okay. So you said in your practice, you guys kind of divide and conquer and you typically work with the person suffering from addiction directly, but a lot of your videos and then, you know, the, the name of the, well, I guess that could apply to your side, but a lot of the videos are, here's how you deal with the person suffering from addiction. So how do you like, like, where is your passion? I know Sherry and I, we work with both sides of the equation as well in a peer support role. Um, but we find a lot of connection with the families and the loved ones. Um, do, do you just connect with both sides? How do you decide where you want to spend your time and your effort? I'm glad you asked me that because I actually wanted to tell that answer. So perfect yeah. question. Um, well, I think initially why I picked that is because I was a when I was new in my career, you are an addiction counselor. So your job is to work with people with addictions. They don't really have addictions, families, counselors. That's not like even a thing, really. Exactly. You know, you might find a few people that do it here and there, but there's not like job titles that say that, you know? And so my, all of my training and my experience had to do with working with the person that had um, a substance abuse problem. And, and this is where I'm kind of glad that my origin story isn't the best because well, early in my counseling career, people, the first question people ask you is, are you in recovery? And I used to be really like nervous about that question. And I didn't want to answer it because I thought I wouldn't have any credibility, which was true. <laughs> because, because immediately a person with an addiction, they want to discredit you any way they can. So the first question of, are you in recovery? If you say no to that question, you're out. <laughs> But even if you say yes, I've learned now, even if you say yes to that question, they'll say, well, from if you said alcohol, they'd say, well, you don't know anything about meth addiction, you know, so they're going to disqualify you anyway. I know that now. I didn't know that then. So I was nervous about that question. But ultimately, I think it is my my biggest strength is because I'm not in recovery. What that means for me is that I look at each person that sits in front of me through a non like I don't have I don't project onto people what I think because I think when you're in recovery it's easy to project your own story onto people and it's easy to think that person is just like you or you know exactly what they're thinking or something like that and so I had to really study it you know to be an addiction counselor and not be in recovery and to gain a client's trust you're gonna have to be like five times as good because you're in recovery, you just say I'm recovery and that's it. You're done. You're golden. They love you. Everything you say is golden. But when you're not, you have to be so good that they're like, dang, I actually dress her. I'm going to listen to her, even though she's not. And so I really had to really focus in and study the issue and study the person and, and look at each person through a lens of each person, you know, understand the addiction part, but, but not project on them any story of, you know, this is my story, you know, and so you're just like me and you better do, you better get out of it the way I got out of it. And you better, you know, get a sponsor. Like I got a sponsor. I just don't have any of that. So ultimately I think it's my greatest asset as an addiction counselor. That's so, such a great, that's such a great answer. We, you know, we actually, we call it, um, oh, I just thought I lost the term. I was about to say it. Like it's an insecurity. It's a, um, imposter syndrome. Yeah. We, yeah. You know, we started talking about this stuff. And we were like, oh, who cares? Nobody will listen. And then people started listening. And we started to 
feel really guilty because we weren't psychologists. And we actually did a whole podcast episode on that recently. But there are some major advantages to coming at it from the angle we come at. And so mm-hmm. I think, so, so did you feel, is that, was that a way to describe? Did you feel that imposter syndrome early on, even though you had the training, you didn't have the lived yeah. experience? Well, yeah. Yes. The answer to that is yes. But I would also say I didn't even have the training. I I went to counselor school. Obviously, I graduated. I got the degree or whatever and got the license. But they don't teach you about addictions in counselor school. And they certainly I mean, they you take one class. It's, you know, addiction counseling. You take one class and they teach you the disease model and they make you go to some 12 step meetings and come back and report on what it's like to go to 12 step meeting. And that's the extent of it. That's it. And so. That was the other thing is I had to learn by fire in a room with 14 addicted teenagers who didn't want to be there. And I was by myself, like at 23 or something, you know, barely just old enough to have had that much college. And so you're just in the deep end and you just learn to swim. And um, and I'm glad of that. I do think that it's a benefit. And so I don't talk a lot about my education or my family experience because none of what I know or do comes from either of those things. None of what I know or do comes from my family experience or from my education. It comes from thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of trying to understand the person sitting in front of me. Wow. What a great way to answer that. Well, I think because like every person is so different and the way they're going to respond, you know, like I can say, Matt will often say in our podcast that me kind of detaching and being uninterested in his new approach to sobriety is what kind of pushed him over the edge. That may not work for someone else. That may make them cling on harder. So Mm -hmm. there is that component that everybody's different and their addiction is so different because of what's, what's, what the addiction is covering up. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that you're looking at it like from each person individual, not projecting your story or your experience from life onto them and trying to really figure them out mm-hmm. to help them and yeah. do that specialized. And I identify with the addicted person. So I think that was the second part of the question. I identify my heart goes to the addicted person. <laughs> um, that's the perspective I understand. And that's why I make videos trying to help family members understand because as a family member you can't get your person to come to counseling (laughs) you know you you, you're trying you know they have a problem but they're not motivated to do anything about it you're the one that's motivated to do anything about it and a lot of times you can't ever get them to go so my goal is to teach people everything I know because they may not ever sit in front of me but if I can teach you how to say and do exactly what I would say and do then you might even can bypass it. And if not, you can shorten the process by a lot. And so my videos are for the family member trying to help them understand the addictive perspective, I guess I would say. That's so you just answered my next question. When I watch your videos, I have assumed for so long now that you had at some point experienced alcoholism in a marriage and you were the sober party. Um, so the fact that you're able to take what you've learned and come at it from that perspective as though you've lived it, like really it, it's compelling. Uh, that's, that's really impressive. So like I said, I had a question there, but you already answered it. So well done. Let's, let's thank you for sharing so much about your personal story. Let's dive into some of the, the things that we've learned from you and get you to share some of that with, uh, with our audience. You recently did a series on a series of videos on the difference between being in love with someone versus being addicted to someone. And I think it's fascinating. And, and I just 
no question. I just want to open it up. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, there's an initial phase of falling for someone. This It's called infatuation. Most of us think that that's what love is. You know, when you see it on movies, it's that infatuation phase that we feel. But that's really an addicted state. When you're in that infatuated state, you know, it's like you can't think about anything else. You can't see their flaws. You take crazy risks sometimes to be around that person. You know, you'll defy your family to be with that person. You lose your mind temporarily in the beginning in an infatuated state. Now, for most people, that wears off, but somewhere between eight and 12 months because that's how we're biologically wired. You know, biology says when you first meet someone and this is the one or whatever, biology wants you to be with that person every second and make some babies. And so that's all you think about is doing that. But then after that, from a biological perspective, a baby usually comes along somewhere after eight to 12 months, you know? And so it, so that part normally fades away in our thinking, which is a good thing. So we could take care of the babies because otherwise I don't know what would happen. So that's normal. I would say, you know, that first phase and then moving into other phases of long-term relationships, that's normal. But when you have that thing where you feel either infatuated with someone or so fearful of losing someone, and that feeling is causing a lot of negative consequences and distress and badness in your life, that's what makes it addiction. It's the same thing as the difference in what makes someone an alcoholic versus somebody that just drinks It's the bad stuff, you know, when all that terrible stuff is coming in because of the way you feel about this person, that's when I think it crosses over into addiction. And so how, how common is that? It, I mean, when, and it, is it more common when it's people in these relationships that we're talking about where there's already an addiction to a substance? Um, it, does does that happen more frequently in those situations? Yes, I think so. It's almost like there are different types of love addiction. I think that's kind of why I made the thing into a video series because it really shows up in different ways. And one of the ways is, is when you are, when you love someone who's addicted, it makes you addicted to them because sometimes they're great and sometimes they're not. And you keep trying to get just the good part. And that is the same thing that the the addict is trying to get out of the drug they're using. Sometimes it's great, sometimes it's not. And you keep thinking, if I could just hang on to this good part of it, we're going to be okay. And you just keep trying to get that and you can't get that. And you leave actually feeling worse than you felt before. So it's almost like a withdrawal cycle and you, you want it to work so badly. And so you get addicted. And then, you know, you have all that fear that takes over um, and there's some other things that come into play that, that keep you stuck in that addiction, just like somebody that has any other kind of an addiction, but yeah, it's the intermittent positive reinforcement. That's what makes things addictive. Intermittent yeah. positive reinforcement. Absolutely. Is, is that addiction as opposed to love to a person and a person suffering from a substance use disorder? Is that the kind of thing that causes the loved ones, causes the family members to enable um, to, to keep the addict in their addiction or make it easier for them because they're grasping at something. Is that, is that part of the cycle? Yes, absolutely. You know, they, they usually, you know, they throw the label codependence on it, which I'm not a huge fan of that word. Neither are we. Yeah. I don't really, it just, it's sort of too broad and I don't know exactly people mean different things when they say it. So, um, but yes, that's, that's part of what it is. It's like, I can't let you go. Um, 
you know, I love you. I want this to work, whether that's your child or your spouse or your parent or your sibling or whoever that is. It's this desire to have it back in this fear of losing it. And it, and it, it is not, it doesn't just cause you to enable, it causes you to lose your mind and act like an addict, <laughs> check, do crazy things, violate your boundaries, say and act ways you wouldn't say and act. It causes you to do all the addictive things. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. What an interesting perspective. You know, one of the things that that we've come to believe over the last few years and that we talk about relatively frequently is that we believe experiencing addiction secondhand, experiencing addiction as the family member, as the loved one, is trauma, is capital T trauma. It's, you know, we, we meet so many people, especially when they're addicted loved one is a high functioning alcoholic and they're, they're holding on to their job and they haven't lost their house yet. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they haven't had any legal problems. Everything gets downplayed and they even question themselves, you know, am I really even going through something or does everybody just, you know, drink 19 beers after work? Um, and maybe I'm blowing this out of proportion, but so, like I said, we are believers that that is, is real trauma. What is your opinion on that? And can you talk a little bit about what the trauma of living with addiction does to people? I absolutely think it's trauma. I think it should have its own diagnosis, honestly. It's somewhere, we think in my office, we think it's somewhere between post-traumatic stress disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder. It's like if you if you put the two in a blender, because it's really trauma. And a lot of times people try to manage that trauma by um, compulsively checking, compulsively questioning, compulsively looking, compulsively making demands and contracts. And, and it's like, like someone might check the stove because of this fear. And it's the way they're trying to manage their fear comes out in these sort of compulsive ways they interact with the person. So I absolutely um, think it's trauma. And, and I think you bring up a, a really great point, Matt, when you say, you know, you, you see these spouses of functional alcoholics, which we see a lot of, like, I see a lot of businessmen who drink too much, who are super successful, but are, but are struggling with alcoholism nonetheless. And it's so hard as that spouse, because not only do you have the trauma of their addiction, but when they're in that functional phase, no one else even believes you. And the, and the person that's addicted is, is going around telling other people that you're crazy because you've been acting crazy. So there's a little truth in that, but also, splitting everyone against you so now you have like this wave of like you're experiencing this trauma that no one will even listen to you about and believe you and is invalidating you um and so it it just adds to it I think Mm -hmm. yeah Matt used to give me a list of everything that was great in our lives we didn't have credit card debt we had these cars paid off all this list to convince me and to convince himself that he didn't have a drinking issue. Nothing to see here. That that I was the one that had the drinking issue because I grew up with an alcoholic father was my deflection, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing we try to like tell all of our partners is, you know, I know that they're functional, but there's still trauma and that you're right. People don't believe you because they don't see it. They're not living inside the home. Right. They don't have the front row seat because a lot of times, especially with alcoholism specifically, the person will function at work well enough for for many 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 years but at home they don't function and so it is the spouse is the one that sees it and it is hard even for the person that has the alcohol problem to see it because 
because they do function, because they are well liked, because they are making good money, because they do help with the family. You know, it, it is it's legitimately hard for them to see it as a problem. And because we have in our uh, in our minds what alcoholism looks like, but alcoholism happens in stages, and functional alcoholism is still alcoholism. It's just stage three alcoholism as opposed to stage four after you've done lost everything and your wife's done left and you lost the job. But it's what happens right before that. But it it's not um, not an alcoholic. It's I haven't got to that stage yet. It's like cancer. You know, if you let it go, it's gonna get there. Do you, do you interact with a lot of people who will finally acknowledge, okay, fine, fine. I've got a drinking problem or I've got a substance use disorder, but I can handle this on my own. I can't believe I'm being dragged here to this counselor. Do you have a lot of people that don't appreciate what it's done neurologically and they think they can just will their way out of it? Is that something you see? Every, every single time, every single one of them. <laughs> yeah. And that's because probably, you know, we sort of specialize in that at our office. So all the people I see pretty much fit that criteria. And so one of the things that I'm good at is working with someone in those early stages of figuring it out and sort of allowing people their process of bargaining and trial and error and figuring that out. And that's why I have to have the family counselors because the family doesn't understand that. They think, they think I'm believing everything the person says. And I'm like, no, I'm just letting the person prove it to themselves. So the my family counselors like keep saying, no, this is why it's happening. Let them do this because we're, we're figuring this out. You know, my job is to help them figure that out. And I'll say, all right, well, let's try to cut it back. Let's try this. Let's try that. Maybe this will work. And we go through that process together until they can see it for what it really is. That's fascinating. When it comes to the the recovery of the loved one or even the relationship recovery side of thing, Sherry and I have started to really feel like there's a cycle to it, not mm-hmm. only that we've lived, but that we've just seen over and over. And it's so interesting when you meet somebody and you just want to hug them and tell them, here's what you need to do, but that'll never work. You know, they've got to go through this process. We talk yeah. a lot about how you'll know when you know, as it relates to the stay or should I go question with yep. the, the person that they're married to. And you can't shortchange that. It's like, you know, detachment's a good example. You can explain what detachment is till you're blue in the face. People can mm-hmm. read about it and study it and watch videos about it. But until they're emotionally ready to do that, they're, they're not going to be very good at it. You can't fake detachment. You either feel it or you don't. Right. And so there's this process that people have to work through. And I just love what you say about, you know, you, you meet somebody and you know where it's going. You just have to guide them to, to get through all the steps to get to the, to the finish and, line. And since you didn't do counseling while you were trying to figure this out, and it, yes, it took you 10 years to figure out that you- 10 years of relapses. Relapses over and over. It was like a really long rope for you to end up hanging yourself to realize, ah, yeah. oh, there I am. I'm, I'm at the end. And, but we had to go through all that bargaining and denial and rules and and, think and I love that you're guiding it, yeah and I love that you're guiding them through it but then you have the family members because oftentimes there isn't that piece of it to the family members where they're like oh the counselor just because we hear it the counselor just believes everything that they say you know there's no they've they've got their counselor convinced and all like in the back of my mind I'm thinking I, they probably don't have their counselor or therapist really convinced they but probably do if the family's not involved yeah, you know, I have a, a 500 videos on YouTube about manipulation and lying to see, and I promise you, I would believe them every single time if I didn't have my family counselors. Well, did they tell you they did this yesterday? I'm like, no, they didn't tell me that, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, 
it, it would be very easy to believe if I only saw the addicted person and wasn't getting the information from the family. I would I would probably believe it even with everything I know because I still do every day. <laughs> they're just so good. Yeah. yeah, because they believe it. So they're telling it to you very genuinely because it's they're how they really feel. <laughs> how many of us really believe, genuinely believe in the middle of our addiction that we don't lie. I never lie. I'm, I'm, I, that is a core piece of who I am that I'm honest. And in the meantime, we're denying and gaslighting and covering up and we have no idea that we're doing that. Because um, you're lying to yourself. And so you don't know. Exactly and that's right. why it's so believable. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. You know, let, let's keep going down this cycle a little bit. So one of the things that Sherry and I was really effective for us and that we believe is if the relationship is going to survive at, after the substance is gone, once you're into sobriety, you know, first of all, I thought sobriety fixes everything, right? All I got to do is get sober and this will be lovey-dovey and, and let's go make another baby. Everything's <laughs> going to be great. And little did I know that is not at all how it works. And a big piece of what we stumbled through as we were learning this is that we needed to give Sherry space to process the resentments that she felt from years of gaslighting and denials and, and things like that. Talk a little bit about that. When, when you get you know, to the point where sobriety is taking hold and you're making progress, do you, since you work with families, do you deal with people who, um, who think there, I got sober, why isn't everything hunky-dory? And then that's when the, the real work kind of begins. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, sure. Like, because the addiction has taken such main stage in the relationship, that's, and it's such a crisis, you know, it's a fire in your house. You're not thinking about the plumbing issue. You're not thinking about wanting to remodel this or that because there's a fire in your house. <laughs> so you think if I get this fire put out, but then once you get the fire put out, there's a couple of things. One is all like what you were saying, Matt, is all the damage that's caused that has to be repaired. Right. So even if the addiction goes away, there's a lot of damage that needs to be dealt with. And then secondly, regular married people stuff, <laughs> regular stuff that hasn't been dealt with because the addiction has been taken stage. So it, it definitely all has to be dug through. But one one thing that I tell my clients, which is the addictive one, because they'll be complaining about the other problems in the house because that's what they do. That's what they want to talk to me about. They don't talk to me about that dream. They talk to me about their wife and this and that and everything else, you know. And so one of the things I tell them is, I believe you, because I do. And we're not going to be able to address it until you quit drinking, because until you quit drinking, you're the villain. Everything's blamed on your drinking, which it is. It's true. Everything is the drinking. And so they get blamed for everything. They have no credibility. They have no say in anything. You know, they're, they're the scapegoat. They're the bad person in the family. And so nothing they say holds any water. And I say, yes, we will totally address that as soon as you quit drinking. Because when you quit drinking, everything else will surface. And you can see all the other little things that are going on. And that feels kind of validating to the addicted person, I think. Because they're like, see, I told you it was just me. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'm wondering if one of the things that surfaces is a topic that we come back around to every five or six weeks on the podcast. and something that we've spent a lot of time working on and talking about. And that is intimacy. And our experience with intimacy, both firsthand and in working with other people, is that there's, it seems to us that there's kind of two paths that this can go down while the addiction is still present. The, the one that we went down was we continued to have physical contact. Um, 
Sherry just hated every minute of it pretty much. Um, and so it was very one-sided and did a lot of, a lot of damage and caused a lot of resentment. And then we meet a lot of people for whom intimacy has just completely evaporated. And, you know, the drinking has kind of taken the place of the intimacy and, and it just is non-existent. Is that something that comes up in counseling? Is that a, a hot topic? It's, it's definitely something that comes up in counseling. Um, one of the things that I hear from my viewers a lot, and this comes from, you know, like comments and emails I get from people that watch my videos is they'll say, my husband always wants to have sex when he's drunk and I don't want to have sex with him when he's drunk like that. What do I do? You know, and that is a big concern. Or like you said, it's either that or it's the other thing, which is there has been no sex life for years. Like n- nothing has gone down for a long time. And that's hard for me to answer for people because to the family member, to a wife, you know, I'm not going to tell a wife, well, you need to have sex with your husband, whether he's sloppy drunk or not, because that's that's not sexy, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, what are you going to do? But I also think the intimate contact is important in general um, because it helps you to stay connected. And especially if, um, for men, sex is as effective as an antidepressant. And it actually helps women too. We just don't have the desire for it as much, but it does, it is helpful. It helps you feel connected to the other person. So um, I try to encourage that. And some of my clients that I say, my my alcoholic guys, I'm, I'm like, I'll graduate you when you get a home run for those ones that it hasn't been happening for so long. I'm like, I'm not letting you out of here until you get the third base. You're not leaving, you know, and, that, and that'll be like their therapy goal. <laughs> you know, how are you going to seal the deal? because it, it's important and it needs to come back. Yeah, I, I'm a big believer that the role of self-esteem in recovery for both sides of the equation, both for the, the drinker and the loved one is so, so important. There's so much self-esteem that's wrapped around that intimacy piece. And if we just give up on it and say, fine, I'm just not gonna have physical contact with my spouse for the next 50 years, um, it makes it hard to reach that level of self-esteem to, to overcome the demons. Agreed. Um, yeah. yeah. So we use something called the craft method, which is a way of sort of like positively reinforcing people into change. And so I'll sometimes tell like the wives I say, I'm like, when he's not drinking, go over there and pat him on the vet and tell him he looks sexy. Go over there and just say something super flirty to him um, because that does help them. That makes them feel wanted and connected to. And you're positively reinforcing um, you know, the sobriety times. And so you can kind of use it for the building of the self-esteem and for the positive reinforcement at the right moments. Now, when the person isn't being sober, we, I just encourage you to be neutral. So you don't be negative. You don't say you're nasty, get away from me. You know, you don't do that. You just sort of move to another room. You're just neutral. So positive reinforcement on the positive behaviors. And I got to imagine that neutral is the hardest thing for them to accomplish, especially if they've had some extended sobriety they're experiencing. And then all of a sudden the sobriety goes away. They want to just rage and, you know, tear things up and tell them how they really feel about them. So mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, the not being positive, that part would be easy, but the being neutral as opposed to negative, that's got to be the challenge for people, is it? It's very difficult. And a lot of times I have to say, no, there's a difference in being neutral in the silent treatment. Let's talk about what that difference is, you know, because people say, okay, fine, I'm just going to, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm like, that's not what being neutral is. And it's hard to talk to people about because is it fair to have to keep your mouth shut? Absolutely not. 
Absolutely not. Should you be able to say everything you want to say? You totally should, but it's not effective. So I have to say, you know, when people do lash out, I, I don't, I don't, I'm like, I don't blame you. Like, I, I was thinking the same thing myself, you know, so I don't blame them at all. But you have to ask yourself, what is my goal here? And sometimes your goal is, I just want to tell you how this makes me feel. And that's fine. <laughs> you could do that. If your goal is to get a relapse, do the damage control on it and get it to stop sooner, then we need to do something else. Yeah, it's so interesting. We, we talk with people all the time about how, because Sherry's, she's, she's fiery. That's one of the things, I, that's one of the reasons I fell in love with her, because she didn't take shit from anybody. But then when I turned into an alcoholic, she didn't take shit from me either. And there was a downside to that. I didn't like that quite as much. But um, we just, we, we tell people that alcohol changes you. It doesn't just change the neurochemistry of the drinker. It changes the, the loved ones as well, your reactions to things. And, and we, you know, a lot of people feel a lot of shame about how they reacted, but um, in the, like you said, there's a fire going on right now. Um, this, this is not, you know, changing the, the faucet in the kitchen. This is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And so a big deal kind of reaction is, is not something to beat yourself up about. Not necessarily going to fix the problem, but sometimes right. you got to get it out. Yeah. It's I, a I, symptom of the addiction. I can tell someone's addictive by the way their family acts. I could not ever even talk to the person and tell from what's going on with the family member that they're addicted. Cause it's, it's predictable. It's a pattern. I think that that was when we were just talking about that, it made me think that maybe my detachment wasn't so much that I was um, giving you the silent treatment and whatever. I was just being more neutral and I wasn't firing back. I wasn't questioning. I wasn't engaging. I didn't have that desire that comes for me to like argue and fight and get it all figured out and tell you how I'm feeling. I just was more neutral and that enough was enough for you me just kind yeah, of being like, okay, you whatever you think you need to do, you yeah. just do that. You know, that sort of behavior. It wasn't me withdrawing and giving you the silent treatment. It was just that lack of attentiveness or my lack of being interested with lots of opinions. That it probably of, is like exhaustion. And that's the, the same thing that happens to the person when they decide to sort of quit drinking or whatever it is they don't decide to give it up completely until they're exhausted until they've tried all their bargains and all their things and they've done all the things. And that's why I said, we got to let it go down so we can get there. Same thing for the family member. You don't get to that point of like, okay, you know, that I'm going to let go of it thing until you're exhausted or hopefully until, you know, you, you know, you, you don't, you don't have to get to that point if you can like understand what's happening. But as soon as the family member steps out of that role then you're not providing the distraction. You're not being the bad guy villain anymore. And the person starts to figure out quickly. And that's why I say, don't, don't tell them how you feel. Don't say how you think because you're slowing down the process. Cause then they just get so preoccupied with what a jerk you are that they can't see their own problem. And so when you step back, just like what you are talking about, Sherry, it, it just allows the person, they can't fixate on you anymore. Then they're like, well, dang, I kind of am making a mess over here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's what the reason we kind of started this was we wanted to let everybody know our mistakes. Yeah. You know, uh, 20 Don't years, take as long 20 as years of mistakes that we made, you know, because mm -hmm. we were arguing and bickering when we were dating and in college. So we just had a mess of it from it was a shit show from the beginning. But I, I appreciate that. So seeing like someone with your um, 
your practice, you're helping them like shortcut to don't engage, you know, to, to like take the attention off of you, the partner, mm-hmm. so they can realize and go through all that themselves. Yeah, tell exactly. Us, tell us a little bit, Amber, about, I, I watched a video you did recently about interventions and mm-hmm. whether or not that's an effective approach. How does someone decide whether or not they should uh, set up an intervention in, in, for their, their addicted loved one? Well, these days there are a few different kinds of interventions, but normally when I say intervention, I mean like the old school way, like you see on the TV show intervention, like, you know, like everybody's in a circle in the room with their letters to read to you, surprise intervention. So when I talk about interventions, that's the kind that I mean is that kind. But um, I, I definitely think there's a place for that. And I think the place for that is when, when things are imminently bad, like the person is literally going to kill themselves. They're going to kill someone else. Like, like they're not even denying it's a problem. It's just so out of control. Like it's just a mess, you know, I think that's the place for that. So it's kind of in that end stage, like it's, it's this or else, like it's just going to fall apart. Like they're going to die or whatever. Um, Prior to that, when you're dealing with a functional, if someone's still in that sort of functional alcoholic stage, um, I I don't think that that's the best method because people have to go through all their bargaining stages before they're done. So I'm not saying it doesn't ever work. You could do that with somebody in an earlier stage and you might could get them to go to treatment. But I guarantee you, if they still have it in the back of their head that I could, if I could just drink on special occasions or if I could just do it, um, on the weekends, I'd be fine. Then they will go back and try that out at some point. And then you've spent $7,000 for an interventionist, $30,000 for the treatment. And we're still going to go through the stages. You're going to go through the stages. You can speed them up. You cannot skip them. And so when someone's in an earlier stage, I don't, I don't advise that type of intervention. Plus it can be quite it is quite traumatizing to the person that's on the receiving end of that. Um, They feel very like betrayed. They feel like, oh my God, like everyone's talking about me behind my back. It's pretty humiliating. Some people are like, whatever, they get over it fast. And then some people really, you know, really hurts them. And that, you know, they really sticks with them for a long time. Now, like I said, if someone's about to die, I don't care. They can be mad at you. They can feel betrayed. They can feel traumatized, but they're alive. So do it. But I think, you know, I'm always saying make strategic decisions, figure out where they are at in their addiction, where they are at in their stages of change, what their personality is like, what is the best way to start getting through to this person. And sometimes people don't realize, you know, people immediately go to, I got to get the person in treatment. And a lot of times they're trying to skip the step of, I got to get the person to a point where they know they need to stop. Yeah. Free treatment. We got to yeah. do these things first and then go there if we need to go there, because otherwise they're going to come out and do that again. That's why so many people go to treatment, you know, 10 times because, you know, it's pushed too early. Yeah, we we know addiction counselors who do a lot of court ordered work mm-hmm. and that step has been skipped. They've been sent there by a judge to do this treatment and they've never acknowledged that they have a problem. And they're only there to get their piece of paper signed there and listen to a darn thing the counselor is saying. That's very interesting. I've never heard anyone say it quite as definitively as you just did, that you've got to go through the stages. You can speed them up, but you can't skip them. So this is this is just universal. You're going to deny that you have a problem. You're going to go through all the, well, you called it bargaining. 
Um, I call it rules making, you know, I'm going to mm -hmm. set all these rules around it. Mm -hmm. um, but everyone's going through that one way or the other. That, that's yeah, because otherwise you still have it in the back of your head that maybe if I do it this way, and not only is someone going to have to try it, but they're going to have to try it several times because they're going to try it and then their rule and it's not going to work, but there's a special reason why that didn't work. Let me try that again. I'm, I'm going to make it work this time. So not only are we going to have to bargain and try it, we're going to try it three or four times <laughs> until like we come to the point like, dang, it just never works <laughs> or it never works long-term because it, it's tricky because sometimes the little rules will work for a week or two. Yeah. And that makes us think, okay, like I was doing it, like I just got to do it. And that's why it takes so many times that not only does it not work, but like every single time, eventually it's going to land me in the same place. We yeah. got to get there. Yeah. Oh, so fascinating. Um, one last question on the topic of interventions. I've heard you say, and this surprised me that a lot of times the family pays for the intervention, works with the interventionist, and then doesn't go through with the intervention. Um, that's what, what causes the cold feet if you've already kind of paid for it. Well, that old school type of intervention is very confrontive. Sure. And in order to make it work, you have to have every important person in that person's life on board. You have to have grandma and grandpa and husband and wife and kids and best friend and sometimes even boss. Because if there's one person that's not on board with that, there's an escape hatch. And no one is going to treatment when there's an escape hatch still available, I promise you. <laughs> so that kind of confrontational intervention can work, but only if like literally all, you know, there's no one that's going to come pick this person up. There's no one that's going to bail them out. It's, so you have to have everybody on board and it's really hard to get that many people like on board with confronting someone because a lot of people are even if they're on board with the idea and they believe it's a problem and they believe this person should go to treatment some people are just so they they're like I don't want to I don't want to call them out I don't want to be the bad person and so it's hard to get everybody engaged trained on what to do how to do it in the same room that's why a lot of times it doesn't you know i think about 30 percent of them actually happen that's fascinating that lines up so well with my own experience i i never experienced an intervention but i definitely you know i quit drinking not because i wised up not because i decided i wanted to live a healthier lifestyle I quit drinking because I could find no other option. I tried and tried and tried to find any other option, but the depression and anxiety was debilitating to the point where I was going to start losing, you know, the important things in my life. And Sherry was detaching from me and there was no way, no matter what I tried, I couldn't fix either of those situations. So that sounds very much uh, in line with what you're talking about. There's no escape hatch. If everyone's on board, that person has no other option. That's fascinating. Yeah. And I like what you said, Matt, because I think that's really important. I want to call attention to it. It's like, you know, I didn't quit because I was done. I just quit because I didn't have any other option. And that's what I say. People say this all the time. Even people in recovery tell people, family members this, and I'm telling you different. They have to want it. And I'm here to tell you no one wants it ever. Even the people that call my office and say, I got to stop drinking. They're not calling me because they want to stop drinking. Um, they're calling me because their life is falling apart and they don't have any other options. And they can see they're either at the end of the road or they can see that they're that they're close and that they're going to be there if they don't change. And so I, I just think the idea of like, wait, do you want it? Wait, do you want it for yourself? is ridiculous. Yeah. 
sometimes people are in recovery when they remember it back, they'll remember it that way. And they'll say, well, you just have to decide you want it for yourself. And it's really kind of a romantic way to remember it back. I'm on the front lines and I'm telling you, I've been this long time. That's not how it happens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what I tell people, I, I hope my hope for them is that they eventually get to a change of mindset where they value their sobriety, not because it's a requirement, not because they have this disease and they have acknowledged the fact that they, they're a compulsive drinker and they can't drink anymore. And it's a kind of woe is me. This is my lot in life thing. I hope for people that they get to the point where the value of the life they create in sobriety is so great that they would never drink because they don't want to jeopardize that. Because I do believe positivity is a really important part of it. And that's, I mean, I tell people, you know, if God himself came down and sat in that chair right across from me and said, you can now drink with no consequences, Matt, I still wouldn't drink because I just know too much at this point and things are so much better without it. Um, and so I think that's got to be the goal. But that takes a long time. You do eventually ha- staying sober. You have to want it for yourself. That is true. But but the way it's told to people is wrong because they're saying like, there's nothing you can do until they want it for themselves. And the want it for yourself doesn't come until you've been sober for quite some time. So the reason why you get sober and why you stay sober is two is two different reasons. I'm really glad you said that because I didn't. I didn't think to clarify that, but you're right. Eventually people do need to want it for themselves and they will, but it that's not why they got sober. <laughs> yeah, that's a really important distinction. But that really helps me actually with future interactions. Because frankly, because we work a lot with couples and we get to know uh, the loved ones often first, we have a lot of people that our first interaction with them that are suffering from alcoholism, their first interaction is because they were pushed to us by their spouse Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of the very first things I always ask is, are you doing this for yourself or are you doing this because, you know, your wife's nagging you and you've got an ultimatum on the, on the deck. Um, but you're helping me to think it through to the point where, you know, I, I have always accepted the answer of, no, I want it for myself this time. Um, we need to dig a little deeper. Nobody wants it. Um, they just, they they're, out, they're out of options. Because they've got so much to lose and they're They out of don't options. want something. You do it because yeah. there's something happening that you don't want, whether it's go to jail, lose your children, lose your spouse, lose your job, you know, feel terrible every day. It's something that you don't want and that there's no bad reason to do it. So I'm just like you, Matt, when people come to see me they're, I mean, almost always they're coming in because somebody has dragged them in to see me. Right. And and I, and I'll just say, Hey, why are you here? And they'll say, well, I'm really here. Cause my wife made me come or she watched your stupid videos and now I'm in here or whatever. And I'll say, that's cool, man. <laughs> like, I'm like, this ain't going to be that bad. I promise. I don't say, well, you know, come back when you want it, which is what a lot of addiction counselors would say. I'd say, you must really love your wife. Like that's a big sacrifice to make. And then I immediately take their side. And then I don't talk to them about their drinking or whatever it is. I'll say, what's going on in the family that's causing you problems? Well, my wife is doing this and doing that. And she want me to do this. And I'll say, I'll handle that for you. Give me five minutes. Okay. I'm going to go down and talk to my family counselor. And I'm going to make that happen for you. And then I have an alignment and then we can do some work. So I, I think a lot of times people get rejected when they're not hundred percent on board and people don't get a hundred percent on board until they're sober, like a year. <laughs> That's, I love your approach. Are you familiar with Annie Grace and her book, This Naked Mind? Oh, I love it. Yeah, I really like her. Mm-hmm. I've read the yeah. book. I like the book. I recommend it a lot. I, I challenged her once because she pitches it. What's that? On the yeah, I, I challenged her because she pitches the book as 
you know, that we're going to teach you how to control your drinking. And, you know, I said, isn't that kind of a bait and switch? If, if you read that book, it's about quitting drinking. And she said, you got to, Matt, you got to meet people where they are. You know, if I was sitting on a bar stool and somebody started preaching sobriety to me, I wouldn't listen to that person. So, and I love that approach that you take. I'm, I'm too much of an asshole. I got to be better at meeting people where they are. (laughs) I'm learning a lot. Are we recording? Because really I'm just getting a lot of information from Amber. This is great. It is, it is a bit of a bait and switch, but what it is, is it's, it's allowing someone to go through their process of figuring it out. And, and if you just, most people do figure it out. If you just allow them to, you know, and help them work through it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good stuff. What, what's your opinion of like, what's the right, um, concoction for recovery? You've got programs like the 12 step programs where people are, you know, as we say, working the steps there. And then there's a million other online programs that most of them have some sort of curriculum associated with them. And then you've got group work and then you've got individual counseling. Is it important for someone to engage in all of those things? Not necessarily. I do think there are some sort of core components to recovery. And and I can tell you what what I think they are. I mean, everyone has different opinions about it. And then you, but you can go about getting them in any number of ways. (laughs) So there's some things you need and you, and then you can figure out how you want to get them. I think you do need someone else um, if possible to be some kind of sounding board for you because you cannot trust yourself when it comes to addiction. So when people say you can't do it by yourself, that's that's really what they mean is because you're going to lie to yourself. You're going to trick yourself. You're going to talk yourself into doing that bargain, that rule thing one more time, even though it hasn't worked like five times, you know, and you need someone that you trust because at some point you have to let go of doing it on your own and you have to do it someone else's way, even though you don't believe it or you don't think it's right, but you trust them enough to try it anyway. And you, and you have to have someone that can kind of say, hey, I don't think you're thinking about this right. So whether that's through counseling, a treatment program, a sponsor, smart recovery, whatever, you need to put that in place for yourself, I think. And then um, the other piece is I think you have to find a way to feel proud of yourself. Um, Because like you were saying earlier about the self-esteem, it's a huge piece of recovery. You're never going to stay sober when you hate yourself because why? you know, and you're miserable. And so you have to start turning into the kind of person that you're proud of. And I like, I do like 12 step programs because they sort of teach you how to do that systematically. They don't say that's what they're doing, but they teach you how to live right with integrity. And when you start living with integrity, you start liking yourself. So it's a, it's a byproduct of that, but there are a million other ways to do it too. You can go out to one of these Christian farms and, and work and, you know, raise vegetables and feel proud of yourself. You know, there's a lot of ways to do that, but you have to learn to live in congruence with your values and be a person that you like. So that's the other piece. And then to me, the third other last big piece is you have to find something bigger than yourself and that doesn't, that could be higher power, but it, it doesn't have to be, you know, it can be, um, I'm helping other people and that's bigger than myself. I care about my kids and my wife more than I care about me. And that's why I'm doing it. You know, um, when people say I'm doing it for these alternative reasons, I'm like, those are good reasons. In fact, I think doing it for yourself is the weakest reason because there are days when you don't care <laughs> and, so, and you don't, you don't care what happens to you. And so caring about something else, something else that's so important to you, that you need to be sober to do it. It's the third final piece, I think. 
That's great. Gosh, I could just listen to you talk all day. I love you, you've twisted my thinking on a lot of things and given me a lot to think about. It's really fantastic. Um, so in your practice, it sounds to me like we're trying to treat the person with the addiction and we bring the family in to support that treatment. But we are we are big believers that the family members deserve and in most cases need that recovery. So it's not only as a support for the addict, but they, they, they've got their own work to do, whether the relationship survives or not. I mean, they can get divorced and move halfway across the country. That person's still got work to do. How do you respond to that? What do you think about what the loved one needs, regardless of how it's going to impact the addict? Well, I a thousand percent agree with that. But my approach to how I like convey that is a bait and switch, as you would call it, Matt, because I figured that out. I mean, that's not hard to figure that out. I figured that out a long time ago. But when you tell a family member whose loved one is addicted that they need to come in and do therapy, you're like, well, I can help you. It's insulting. It makes them mad. They're like, I'm not the one with the problem. And I can't believe you just said that to me, you know, and they're mad. So you cannot say that. That's not the way to like sell it. But if this is what I learned in my practice, I learned, I'll say, well, I will talk to your loved one, but I'm going to need you to come up here because you know, they're not going to tell me the truth and you're going to need to come up here. So I really hear what's really going on. Otherwise they're just going to lie to me. And when you say that boy, you hear the tire squalling (laughs) up into your parking lot and they're like jumping out before they put their car in park to come in there and talk to you then. So (laughs) that's, that's the way I learned to make it happen. So I figured out I needed the family on board, but it took me longer to figure out how to get them on board. That's, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, Cause if we have that door is open for us to like rat you out. I mean, that's, that's a process for us, like keeping all that bottled up inside and then having somebody like validate, like, you know, that just opens the door to the trust. I mean, that, that could be a floodgate of just information, but it's unburdening us, mm-hmm. a loved one, to which oh, is healthy. Which is healthy. You gotta get that off, and then they'll realize how important it is that they need to get that out. Yeah. Right, and and it, it's buy-in because that's pretty legitimate. You know, when you say that to a family member, they're like, "That's probably true," and it is true. It is true. That is a big reason why we need the family to be involved because we do. We don't just need the information, but we need them to be on board and help. I cannot, I can't fix them on myself, especially if I'm doing what I'm doing, but everything is still going crazy in the family. They're just wasting money on me. (laughs) That's what I tell them. So, but if they can come on board and they can learn and we can all be doing the same thing, now we're going to get somewhere. Mm -hmm. Outstanding. Gosh, I've gotten so much from this time together. Amber, I want to make sure that our listeners know how they can um, hear more from you. So again, um, the, your YouTube channel is put the shovel down and your website, which is full of all kinds of great resources is family recovery Academy dot online. Did I get mm-hmm. both of those. Correct? That's, that's um, right. Got it right. Yeah. Are those the two best kind of entry level ways for people to connect for the first time? I think so. And I mean, I think you, I mean, obviously I'm on like Facebook and all the things, you know, whatever, but the best, the best way is through YouTube, I think, because you can, you can um, start learning and start shifting your situation immediately. Once you have the information and the strategy, you can start, you can start making some changes. Do you enjoy making those videos? It, it, 
and I'm talking about the editing part because I hate editing of any sort. But I watch those, and you you clip together little people, like you you take out little imperfections, and you're you got a different kind of uh, viewpoint or frame or whatever. I don't. I'm not describing it very well, but it looks like it takes you a lot of hours to edit one of those videos. You must be pretty I have good an at editor. Point. Oh, there you go. That's the. I mean, one piece of my business that literally I don't know how to do myself. I mean, there's a lot of pieces I don't do myself, but I could. The editing, I just, it, it wouldn't be good at all. Like, <laughs> it would be bad. So that's, I have to have somebody to help me with that. That's brilliant. Well, it is good. So keep doing it however you're doing it. I have to say, Amber, you are so engaging and disarming. Like we said at the beginning, we were a little intimidated having you on. And uh, I just felt like we've been sitting here talking to a friend. I've forgotten that there's a microphone sitting in front of us half of the time. So I don't know if this, I don't know if our listeners are going to be able to tell that we've forgotten there was a microphone, but uh, we've certainly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on the Intoxicated Podcast. Thank you guys. And you guys were great interviewers. I do this a lot and most people don't know the right questions to ask, but you guys did. So you got the best, the best information out of me because most people don't ask the right questions. Oh my goodness. You did perfect. My self-esteem is going to be in in check for the rest of the day. That's for sure. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.